Well, good morning. It's great to be back this week, and thank you for your prayers and support. Uh, Fern is home and well, and uh, we're very grateful for all your expressions of care over the last week. <clears throat> Louis Armstrong sings the song, What a Wonderful World. I see trees of green and red roses, too. I watch them bloom for me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I see skies of blue, and I see clouds of white, and the brightness of day and the dark sacred night, and I think to myself, please, children, just leave. <laughs> Don't wait for me. <laughs> I can hardly wait to hear what I'm going to say. <clears throat> the colors of the rainbow, so pretty in the sky, are also on the faces of people passing by, and I see friends shaking hands, saying, how do you do? And they're really saying, I love you. I hear babies cry and watch them grow, and they'll learn much more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. And it is a wonderful world, but it's a fallen world. It's a wonderful world in which we experience loss, and we grieve that loss. It's a wonderful world in which we experience affliction, and we mourn that affliction. The loss of loved parents gets us to think, what about me? I'm the next generation to go off the scene. What now? Loss of a spouse raises questions of identity. Who am I now that my spouse has died and I'm, I'm not part of a couple anymore? I'm single. The death of a child, born or unborn, raises questions of what might have been. The loss of potential. Financial reversal and loss, or being forced from a job or a home or a community, declining health, all produce feelings of desolation and anguish, loss of identity, grief, and personhood. We wonder about our place in the world and our place in the community. And we wonder about the goodness of God and the love and the caring of our friends. Ah, the friends, the comforting friends. The book of Job is set in one of the earliest parts of, of biblical history, around the time of Abraham, somewhere between 2000 2200 B.C. It deals with the affliction and loss experienced by a good man. It deals with the justice of God and the limits of satanic power. And for our time this morning, we're going to think about the comfort or the lack of it that Job's friends brought to him. When we're confronted with loss, how do we find comfort? When our friends are confronted with loss, how do we bring them comfort? We'll learn some lessons from Job this morning, but let's think, or let's read, first of all, the first two chapters. I'll read the whole two chapters because it's important to get the setting of the book of Job right. So beginning with Job chapter 1, verse 1, watch the screen or 
Read along <clears throat> in your Bibles, the NIV uh, that's in, uh, available to you is the version I'm using this morning. Here's the setting on earth. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and he shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. Even by today's measures, this number of cattle would make a man a wealthy man. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified or consecrated. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. This was a time before the Mosaic Law, a time when God-fearing <coughs> God fathers acted as priests before God on behalf of their children. And so Job would sanctify or purify or consecrate his children, and then he would offer sacrifices on their behalf in order to, uh, uh, in order to gain for them uh, atonement for their sins. Now the scene in heaven. One day the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing, Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You've blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your hands. But on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the sky and burned up the sheep and the servants, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and carried them off. They put the servants to the sword, and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them, and they're dead, and I am the only one escaped to tell you. 
hammer blows of adversity come fast and hard. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, from roaming through the earth and going back and forth in it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil, and he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life, but stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones. He will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. And Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now the comforters come on the scene. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite heard about him, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. Some brief observations about the players. Job, described as a righteous man and noted for his righteousness. He's a wealthy man, the most wealthy man in the East. He offers sacrifices for his children, representing them before God. He is a man that God describes as a righteous and blameless man. One thing for us to describe ourselves that way, but when God does it, it's really true. God delights in Job. He offers sacrifices for his children. He represents them before God. <clears throat> and he's concerned about the spiritual welfare of his kids. We see some things about God. He is in com complete and total control of the world. Not just the world, but the universe. 
Angels come to convene in council before him. This is the, this is the executive committee of the universe. From here, the orders go, and the angels run off or fly off to carry out God's orders. It's a weekly or monthly or I don't know how often it happens. It's an assessment of the universe and what's going on, and God directs the events that are happening and about to happen. He loves Job. He delights in Job. He initiates the question to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? He uses the term my servant to describe Job, and that's a term in the Bible only used of Moses and then of David and then by Isaiah of the coming Messiah when he calls him the servant of Jehovah. So the term my servant, when used by God, is a term of great love and, and delight. A few words about Satan. Notice that he's limited in his power. <clears throat> he can only do what God permits him to do. He asks permission, or he has to ask permission. He's unable to go head-to-head -head with God, power against power. He would lose every time. But he does try to subvert and frustrate God's redemptive plans. In this case, he does it by painting Job as one who loves God because it pays. This has the effect of making Job out to be an evil person rather than a righteous man. Because if he's only good because it pays, his motivations are less than righteous. So God allows Satan to deprive Job of all he has and all he loves to prove to Satan and to us today that Job loves God for his own sake. He loves God freely, not because God blesses him. And then comes Job's friends. Their names are Eliphaz, the Temanite from Teman, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite. Now, for those of you who are still here who are under the age of 12, a question. Who is the shortest man in the Bible? The shortest man in the Bible. You would you like? like you what? No? No? Anyone else like to try? Who is the shortest man in the Bible? Yes. That's a good point. And this is a joke. So when I say the answer, it's not true. <laughs> Shortest man in the Bible was Bildad. He was only a shoe height. Ah, there you go. Okay. But probably Zacchaeus is best known for being short. Yes. The term Job's comforters has persisted in the English language as a metaphor for people who don't really comfort, but make the sorrow worse, make the grief worse by what they say. 
But Job's comforters start well. Let's look at how they start as they bring comfort to Job. Because we can learn things from his friends when we're called upon to bring comfort to our hurting friends, to our friends who are suffering from loss and affliction. These guys traveled a long way. They're probably kings or head men of neighboring tribes, but they, they have to come a long way, a fairly long way, to visit Job. And they go to considerable trouble, but they do come. They do show up. They came with a clear purpose. They came to sympathize and comfort. Job was so disfigured from the boils, they didn't recognize him. So what did they do? They weep. Job's probably weeping. They join him in his sorrow. They tear their clothes. And they threw dirt on themselves in a sign of humiliation and self-deprecation. Self, um, they join him on the ground, setting aside all dignity and decorum. They, they just sit on the ground with Job. And Job, by this time, on the ash heap, scraping his itchy, sore, painful boils with a broken piece of pottery. They assume his position and his demeanor, and they identify with him in his humiliation. He's lost everything. And they identify with him in his loss. For seven days and seven nights, this is the hard part, they sit and they say nothing. Their presence speaks of their sympathy, and their presence speaks of their empathy. And then in chapter 3, which we didn't read, they listen while Job expresses his grief, curses the day of his birth, says he wishes he had never been born. But when they do start to speak, however, they negate the good work they've done so far. So a quick outline of the book of Job from here, chapters Three, Job speaks, chapter 3, Job speaks, and then 4 through 31 are a series of conversations in which each man speaks and then Job responds. Each one in turn suggests that Job deserves exactly what he has received because in their view, God would never punish someone who did not deserve it. Job is suffering, therefore he has sinned. If you suffer, you must have done something wrong. It's a view of sin and suffering that persists even today. And it certainly persisted into the time of Jesus because in John chapter 9, the story opens with Jesus walking past a, a blind man who was born blind from birth, and his disciples say to him, Lord, who sinned, this man or his parents, in order that he was born blind? In the view of Job's comforters, suffering followed sin. Job was very well off, very comfortable. It was a wonderful world for Job. But now he's lost it all. God doesn't just do that without a precipitating sin on the part of the person. So the theology <clears throat> of Job is of God is narrow and deficient. God has 
many reasons for bringing suffering and adversity into people's lives. Not always is it the direct result of personal sin. And their knowledge of Job is also deficient because they presume to know why he is suffering. Perhaps one of the greatest traps comforters bringing comfort to our hurting friends fall into is to presume. To presume we know what God is doing, to presume we know why God is doing it, to presume we know why the person is suffering. Big trap. Try to avoid it. Chapters 32 to 37, a fourth voice pipes up. This man is a man named Elihu, and he speaks accurately of God, but he fails to assess Job fully. Chapters 38 to 41, God speaks, and he challenges Job to defend himself. Job is asked several times through the book, I wish I could speak to God. I wish I could present my case before God but I can't. Now God says, okay, here's your, here's your chance, Job. And when Job is confronted with God, his power, his majesty, his justice, and all the rest, he finds himself unable to speak at all. In chapter 42, God reproves Job's three friends, not Elihu, but he reproves the three um, from, the, from chapter 2, he reproves them and he commends Job, calling him at the end of the experience, my servant. He commends Job, he restores Job's fortune, his family, and his status. We're not told, but presumably Satan suffered a severe setback, as Job proved to be righteous in both abundance and plenty, and righteous in deprivation and loss. And God's delight in Job continues. Now look at four things about Job in the midst of his grief, in the midst of his loss. We're going to think about what Job felt. We're going to think about what Job needed from his comforters. And then we're going to think about what Job got from his comforters. We're going to see what Job learned. Where did Job find hope in the process of his grief and loss and affliction? What did Job feel in his loss? What do our hurting friends feel when, we're, when we suffer great loss of loved ones and suffer the loss of precious, valuable things? He felt helpless. Job chapter 9, verses 14 to 16. He, he tells us how he feels. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. You hear the helplessness there? I can't argue my case. I can only ask for mercy. Even if I summoned him and he responded, I don't believe he would give me a hearing. This is one of the things that our hurting friends will feel, and we will feel too if we are called upon to suffer affliction and adversity. The loss of total control, 
a total loss of control. There's nothing over which we can exercise any control, and we can't stick to routines that we loved and valued. He recognizes that he's so helpless, he can only ask for mercy. Second thing he felt is that God was unjust and that his righteousness was no protection. Job chapter 9, verses 21 and 22, where he says, Although I am blameless, I have no concern for myself. I despise my own life. It's all the same. That's why I say he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. My, my righteousness has not preserved me, and yet I, I am innocent. I didn't do anything to deserve this. He feels like God simply acts indiscriminately in dishing out adversity. The blameless man gets no advantage. Third thing he felt was estranged and distant from God. This is common. When we suffer great loss, suffer great adversity, God feels far away. The presence of God that we once enjoyed just isn't there. We can't get it. Job 9, 32 and 33 say, He is not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. I wish if only there was someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand on us both, someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him, but as it now stands, I cannot. I can't pray, or I have no desire to pray. If only there was a mediator, someone to facilitate communication. And of course, we know today that there is a mediator. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who argues our case against the accuser, Satan, in the presence of God. He intercedes for us constantly. Fourth thing he felt, he felt wronged by God. Chapter 19, verses 6 and 7. Know that God has wronged me and drawn his net around me. And though I cry, I've been wronged, I get no response. Though I call for help, there is no justice. He felt that he didn't deserve this. And still there was no way to make his cry heard. No conduit for communication. We feel that way when we suffer deeply. Heavens are brass. Our prayers go no higher than the ceiling. We simply can't get through. But as we know, reading the story, God heard it all. God took it all down. He took note of everything that Job said. That's what happens with us. God hears us. We just don't feel like he hears us. Agonized crying and all, he hears us. Fifth thing he felt, socially ostracized. His social network broke down completely. 
All his best relationships are gone. Job 19, verses 13 to 20. He, God, has alienated my brothers from me. My acquaintances are completely estranged from me. My kinsmen have gone away. My friends have forgotten me. My guests and my maidservants uh, count me as a stranger. They look upon me as an alien. I summon my servant, but he does not answer, though I beg him with my own mouth. My breath is offensive to my wife. I'm loathsome to my own brothers. Even the little boys scorn me. And when I appear, they ridicule me. All my intimate friends detest me. Those I love have turned against me. The social network and supporting relationships have been destroyed. His guests and servants forgot about him. Sometimes the griever is forgotten by his friends. Sometimes, not forgotten, but ignored. Sometimes it's so... It's so painful for various reasons for a friend to go to his grieving friend. Perhaps they have suffered similar loss and it's too painful. Perhaps they don't know what to say. Perhaps they don't know how to be. But the sufferer feels all of this when he's in the valley of affliction. He feels helpless and wronged and distant from God and ostracized from society. What did Job need then? This is what he felt. What did he need from his friends? He needed devotion or kindness. NIV says devotion. New American Standard says kindness. Job 6, 14. A despairing man should have kindness from his friends, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. Sometimes you go to your hurting friend and they say things about God not caring and they're not going to follow God and just let them speak. They need kindness from us even when they say things that might disturb us. They still need our kindness. In the depths of his despair, a man should be able to expect kindness from his friends. Second thing he needed was a listening ear, Job 21, 2 and 3. Listen carefully to my words. Let this be the consolation you give me. In other words, let listening be its own consolation. Listening be its own comfort. Bear with me while I speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. Please listen to me. Listening is the consolation that you can provide for your hurting friend. Listening is a form and a means of caring. It's more important that they speak than that the comforter speaks. Listening is the indispensable foundation of understanding. Talking even when confused can sometimes help the person understand themselves. He may not understand what's going on inside him, and the listener may be able to facilitate some insight without saying too much. I was on call at the hospital one night, and I was making my way through the different units, and I came to the ICU, and a woman was there sitting with her father, and I uh, said, I'm available if you need to talk, and she didn't uh, take the offer at that point, but later on in the night, 4 a.m. or something, she 
called and I went down and talked to her. Uh, all, I said, let's go somewhere and find a, a quiet place. And so we did. And she talked practically without interruption for 40 minutes. I said, uh-huh, and mm, and made those noises. And she talked and talked and talked. And at the end, she says, thanks for talking to me. <laughs> Sometimes just talking, even when it doesn't make sense, facilitates self-understanding, and, and it certainly facilitates a lightening of the burden. The third thing he needed from his friends, and he didn't get, <clears throat> was compassion and not condemnation. Job 19, 21, and 22, have pity on me, my friends. Have pity, for the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? What he felt, <clears throat> what he needed, what did he get? Well, he got harsh judgment from his wife. Are you still holding fast to your integrity, she said, Mrs. Job? You're still holding fast to your integrity. Curse God and die. And he said, well, you're speaking as one of the foolish women, but we can't be too hard on Mrs. Job. She'd lost everything too. She was going through her own grief, sorrow. He got harsh judgment from his wife. He got condemnation from his friends. <clears throat> they did several unhelpful things. After they'd spent a week in silence with him, they began to speak. They played the blame and shame game. They said, this is your fault, Job. It's unhelpful to try and assess blame when we're trying to bring comfort to a hurting individual. Our friends need us to avoid suggesting that this affliction is their fault. might be true, but it doesn't help to suggest it. It's important to not be too theological. We don't understand what God is doing in the lives of our friends. But we're just there to be with them to assume their place, to empathize with them by trying to answer the question, what would it be like for me to be in your shoes? His friends misrepresented God, and they misunderstood Job. Didn't fit into their orthodox theology, God punishes sinners. If you're suffering, you're a sinner. Pretty simple theology. But of course, God is much broader than that. What does Job learn? Well, he finds some glimmers of hope. He knows by faith. Job, <clears throat> Job expresses faith in two or three passages like flashes of light in the darkness of his adversity. Faith is a way of knowing. It's a form of knowledge. So Job will use the word no even when he's talking about 
what he believes. In all his loss and his despair, he discovers some hope. Job 16, 19. Even now my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God as a man pleads for his friend. This is the other side of his previous request. I wish there was an there was a intermediary. I wish there was a, someone who would put his hand on us both. Now he's discovered that there really is one. Second thing he learns and expresses by faith is that God still lives, but that in a capacity of redemption, he continues on. God does. 19, 25 to 27, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, in my flesh I shall see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. He's, he seems to have a, a glimpse of a future resurrection, a future time in which he will, in his body, stand before God. He's going to survive this. He finds hope that after death and the decomposition of his flesh, he will see God in a different body. Sometimes in the depths of suffering, especially in the dying time, a person looks beyond the curtain and finds hope from scriptures like this. Third thing he learns and glimpses is that God has purpose even in his suffering. 23, 8 to 10. Job 23, 8 to 10. If I go to the east, he is not there. And if I go to the west, I do not find him. When he is at work in the north, I do not see him. When he turns to the south, I catch no glimpse of him. In other words, I can't find him, but he knows the way I take. And here's the purpose. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. You see, he serves, sees purpose in his suffering. It's to refine him. It's to make him better, more precious in God's sight. Elizabeth Elliot wrote a book, Suffering is Not for Nothing. She's a woman who knew her share of suffering. And the whole point is that there is design, there is purpose, there is reason. Suffering, the adversity that we face, is not arbitrary and meaningless and without point. It has great purpose in the hands of God. In conclusion, quickly, <clears throat> a helpful comforter will show up bringing kindness, compassion, a listening ear, maybe lasagna. They'll provide non-judgmental presence. Being there is at least as important as saying something. A helpful comforter will empathize, 
try to place himself into the sufferer's shoes. He'll listen more, he'll talk less, he'll avoid blame, he'll avoid minimizing sentences that start with, well, at least you still... minimizing the person's pain. He'll avoid that. And if he ventures to speak for God, he'll be cautious. Now a word to the sufferer, if I may, if I may be so bold. Don't be confused by the feelings of helplessness and hopelessness and fear. Don't think, don't be confused by the feeling that you're going crazy because you're not. These are normal feelings that go with grief and loss. They're very confusing. But in the depths of despair, realize this is not the end of the story. This is not where it's going to end. Don't be surprised by your friends, perhaps not speaking or not visiting. Your suffering may cause them to fear their own or recall their own. They may not know what to say, and ultimately your hope is not in your human comforters. As soon as you can, shift your perspective toward the God of all comfort. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-7 says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. God is the author and originator of the best comfort. For just as the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Shift your perspective to the God of all comfort and finally shift it to the future in heaven in which he wipes away tears from the eyes of his people. Revelation 21, 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. We live today in the old order that, that John is writing about in Revelation 21. We're in this wonderful world where the order includes grief and suffering and sorrow and pain. There's coming a new world. There's coming a recreated world where God will be with his people and we will be with him and he will be our God and wipe away every tear and even put away the causes of sorrow, the causes of grief. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are ever so grateful that we do not face suffering and adversity alone, but that you have suffered in the person of Jesus Christ. There is no adversity and suffering that you do not know about, and so you are sympathetic toward our pain. I pray for hurting hearts here this morning and ask that you would comfort them with the comfort that only you can provide. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.